keeps Georgia on my mind. 13 past nine, and that's the first choice of our guest presenter, Dr. John Stremlau, Honorary Professor of International Relations at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. Kind of interesting. We played that ourselves yesterday, and the reason we added the John Legend version as well was because that dropped on Twitter yesterday. And I have no doubt that uh, the musician John Legend had been waiting hours to post that. And then when the moment came, he was on. Prof, thank you so much for joining us here on SAFM's Jet Set Breakfast. Thank you, Michelle. You chose that song, I think probably for the same reason that we felt like we needed to choose it. That moment for you, when you realized that Georgia was going to drop, you must have been smiling. Well, we certainly were. My wife, uh, our daughter and I uh, still claim uh, Georgia as our last residence in the U.S. when I was at the Carter Center in, in, in Atlanta. So as a result, we voted in Fulton County, which is a precinct, the precinct, the county that was really at the, at the swing of this. And, of course, our congressman was the late great civil rights leader, John R. Lewis, um, yes. who uh, was referenced in, in uh, uh, Kamala Harris's uh, address last night, very emotional address last night. But I, I heard Ray Charles sing this song when I was a teenager. And at that time, uh, Georgia was uh, under segregation. And uh, he was a blind singer, of course, yeah. but he was clear what his message was. The roads lead back to Georgia. And until Georgia became uh, uh, a, a democracy, a democratic state in a sense, uh, then um, uh, it would still uh, be the, the same uh, kind of apartheid regime. Now you've had this enormous change that... Uh, Stacey Abrams, who was denied the governorship yes. in 2018 by voter suppression, uh, uh, now seems to be uh, cleaning its act up, and it's, it's, it's changing. And what is, is also poignant about the song is that there are two runoff Senate elections that will be in January that will determine the outcome of, of whether or not the Democrats or the Republicans control the U.S. Senate. It, it, it's really quite breathtaking how many things com, com, come together with regard to... Uh, to this song and to the, uh, the the state of Georgia. And of course, if the Republicans do uh, drive the Senate, it would make it a very difficult presidency for President-elect John Biden. Prof, uh, you mentioned Stacey Abrams. We actually mentioned uh, her earlier this morning here on the show. In many ways, she is one of those extraordinary women uh, who made the difference in terms of the elections. You're absolutely right. I, I had the pleasure of knowing her when she was head of the minority in the in the uh, uh, in the in the Georgia legislature, and and she is a really really impressive woman, and is the kind of woman that Kamala Harris was uh, reaching out to and inspiring um, in her address last night. Yeah. And and Kamala Harris was wearing suffragette white. It's important to remember that here uh, there is a, an elected vice president who is a uh, is a woman on the on the uh, 100th anniversary of the suffragettes' right to vote uh, that was a, was achieved in, in 1920. Women did not have the right to vote in the United States until 1920. So, so consequently, this is a, a symbolic moment for a lot of reasons, and I guess I'm just kind of emotional about it. <laughs> We're all a bit emotional. 
You know, Prof, you know, obviously in this particular show, what we tend to do is we tend to sort of go behind the scenes with a person. And yet it seems impossible to go behind the scenes given the news over the last 24 hours. I think that everybody is kind of either cheering or not necessarily. And that's one of the questions that has come through with Uh, regards to the elections as we move forward. Someone was saying, um, can we, this is Kingsley saying, can we really say that Joe Biden and the Democrats won a convincing mandate from the American people, considering how many people voted for a Trump presidency? And how has the Trump's administration changed Republican politics going forward? And I think that that's a critical question. I mean, we've been hearing this idea that, yes, perhaps President Trump is now uh, out of the door of the White House. But that does not mean that Trumpism as a form of politics has ended. Well, Joe Biden addressed that last night. And you're absolutely right. We don't know whether or not he'll be successful but at least we are starting back on the path to what he says is uh, uh, the need for national unity and for national healing. Yes, um, uh, Donald Trump did improve his votes by uh, several million over what he um, had won in 2016 when he lost the popular vote, as he did again, and won in the Electoral College. But what Joe Biden was able to do was to put together a coalition and uh, this was really impressive, the most votes ever cast for a U.S. presidential candidate. Yeah. And indeed, the turnout, despite COVID, over the, the, the electoral period with all the early voting and the like, was the highest turnout since 1900. Uh, it, it surpassed the 1908 uh, record that was talked about in the last few days. It, it is quite astounding that Americans felt that the act of voting uh, which South Africans will understand, was so in- crucial and important that they would act, act, actually carry out their civic duty under very complicated circumstances politically, very emotional circumstances politically, but also the pandemic uh, and the economic yeah. crisis. Prof, you know, we've had a couple of questions where people have asked what kind of damage could Trump do between now and the inauguration? I won't just say Trump. President Trump is still at this point a president. Um, We've had someone uh, who is currently in the States, but she hails from Ethiopia. Uh, We know her well. Maza, she's, she's tweeted to say... Could he do something really serious? Someone else has said, um, could he start a war? Could he repeal environmental legislation? What happens between now and January? He's not going to have much luck with the Congress, I don't believe, because uh, Mitch McConnell is already signaling that they've got to do kind of a, uh, a relief package again for, for the suffering under COVID. I'm, I'm uh, frustrated with the hypocrisy and contradictions of the Republican uh, majority in the, in the Senate. But nevertheless, uh, I don't think they'll go along with anything reckless that Trump might consider doing. Now, he can take executive action, fire people, uh, change rules. But Joe Biden can do that. In in fact, last night's speech, Joe Biden started ticking off what he was going to do from day one. And he's already got his team in place uh, so that rejoining the climate uh, accord and and fixing uh, the health system and all, he can do a lot of that by executive action. So I'm not terribly worried, and I don't think the challenges to the election will go very far. I do think managing the Donald is always a problem for those around him, especially since they're now reduced to a bunch of sycophants. 
so that uh, he, he can be disruptive. But, you know, on the other hand, he may be quiet. He's been fairly quiet. He went ahead and played his golf match yesterday, even though as he was getting his golf shoes on, he heard that, the, uh, yeah. what's his name, uh, Biden had won, Biden and Harris won. Yeah. Okay, we have to go to a break, but when we come back, we, we want to go back to that for a moment because we were all talking in the studio about what president goes to play golf and where is that concession speech. But we'll come back to that right after the break. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. Dr. John Stremlau is Honorary Professor of International Relations at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. He is our guest presenter today. And as I mentioned earlier, of course, at this time, we're usually going into who this person is and why they're the person they are. And yet it seems that uh, we have had a gift thrown into our lap that we need to be able to discuss as well. Prof, we were talking about, I mean, I think... Where is the grace in this? There has to be a level of grace, and yet we don't see it. No, grace is unknown to uh, Donald Trump. He is what he is, and he's got his followers. Make no mistake. Yeah. So, um, you know, there there are always parallels drawn between the, the Jacob Zuma phenomenon here and the Donald Trump phenomenon in the United States. Uh, uh, Trevor Noah famously called them brothers of another mother. And democracies are hard systems to run, as we all know. Uh, South Africa is blessed with a much more rigorous constitution that protects institutions better than the U.S. does. But by and large, it's still a, a, a problem, especially when our two countries are so unequal. So we have got a question from someone who has uh, something to, to ask you with regards to the relationship between South Africa. Let's just go to it. Hi, morning, Paul Swellendam. Um, this election now... Is it going to change the conditions here in South Africa? We've got a squatter camp in Swellingham called Machox. It's been there 15 years, 20 years. Um, it's never changed. No matter who gets voted in America, uh, it's never changed. So what's this going to do to Swellingham? Okay, I know the, the, the rich people get richer, all the exporting and that, but what's that actually got to do with me and this place in Swellendam? Thank you. It's a brilliant question. What does the United States have to do with, uh, I think he said his name was Paul, in Swellendam? Um, look, uh, <laughs> it, it does force me to remind, because you did say what was my early history, um, I became interested in South Africa because I thought that the contradictions in U.S. policy towards South Africa um, would not survive for America's domestic reasons, and that the um, you cannot promote human rights in the world when there's a apartheid regime down here. But in 1976, when I first got involved in this, it was seeming to be an impossibility, an impossibility, and eliminating the squatter camps here or the uh, poverty in the African-American community in the United States is uh, extremely difficult. And particularly when both governments, ours uh, here and in the U.S., are confronting the coronavirus and the economic effects of that. The Biden-Harris agenda for the African diaspora that addresses the problems of African-Americans uh, in the U.S. would be by an extension to U.S.-Africa relations, and in particular South Africa. I think at least you can have a start of a conversation to find practical means. Now, if the 
Biden administration is to rehabilitate the the, the, uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, for example, for public health reasons and cooperate more and and continue the programs that are in public health and in energy and in food down here. That would be, I think, a contribution to the good of the country, but also at the broader level, trying to reinforce this partnership of democracies is important. I know it sounds like thin soup, but... (laughs) The United States is facing a huge economic crisis yeah. uh, and, uh, in, its, in its own terms, and it feels that. Just as South Africa is here, that does not help those suffering in the U.S. or here, and there are a lot more suffering here, relatively speaking, than there are in the U.S. But uh, you have to bring together domestic and foreign policy, and Joe Biden's program does seem to suggest that. It's not all about traditional international relations. It's about the interdependence of our people's and I think that does give some glimmer of promise for greater and closer cooperation, which is one of the reasons why I think a conversation between Cyril Ramaphosa and Joe Biden early on in the new administration there would be very constructive. You know, Prof, you raise, obviously, and I think interestingly it's been raised by a listener there, the idea of geopolitics and how, in fact, there is this entire network. One almost thinks of it like a spiderweb or an ecosystem of how these things connect and connect. And they may not connect in the immediate, but what they do connect is, for example, in the strength of the RAND and how that can then support South Africa or, as you say, how they can connect in terms of relationships around health and relationships around climate, etc. We sometimes forget that, and perhaps now is the time to really tease that out a bit. Well, it certainly is, and one of the big areas that I think Biden has shown an interest in wanting to cooperate on is the illicit financial flows, the so-called beneficial ownership question of who is um, is hiding what should be tax money. It's estimated that South Africa loses some $12 billion a year through, through uh, illicit financial flows, something that Tabo and Becky has been very involved with chairing this special panel, African panel on this. Uh, Donald Trump would have no interest in, 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 in stopping that because he's probably benefited himself. Joe Biden will have an interest in, in trying to address that. And that would be a, a, a very practical and, and an important step. Now, how that money is spent, whether it alleviates the problems of suffering in a, in, a, in a settler camp here, is really for the South African government to struggle with. And that's why I hate to sort of come back that why we have this Ondo Commission to try to stem the tide of corruption here. And Joe Biden has said that corruption should be a, a priority in, in the United States because there is a lot of corruption and it should be a priority here. That, again, is something that I think uh, Ramaphosa and, and Biden could talk about constructively, about maybe having a, a, a closer bi-financial cooperation on, on, uh, on hidden taxes. How are they going to draw people together? Uh, tax avoidance. How are they going to draw people together? I mean, you know, I'm... I, the, the way President Trump uh, governed is going to be very different to the kind of governance that we may get from President-elect Biden. And I did hear a very interesting thing, I think it was on BBC, where they said how he was very much an old school politician who worked between the parties. So constantly working across sides. Do you think he's going to do that with the citizens of America as well? Well, he, he said last night he certainly would. Yeah. And one of the examples of this, and I, I, I really think uh, if, if your listeners have a chance to look at the video clip of Kamala Harris um, oh, uh, in Suffragette White and, and, in, and, in, and in glorifying 
and, and praising the diversity of America and that she's living proof of what is possible and what Biden said was um, she uh, exemplifies uh, the increasing diversity of America and the fact that's a strength. And that's what uh, the Constitution of this uh, great nation, uh, South Africa, uh, celebrates and tries to advance. Mm. It's not easy um, it, to, to protect cultural integrity of subgroups while at the same time bringing them together. But Biden, you're right, has had a, a great uh, history of this. Uh, I grew up in a town very similar to Scranton, Pennsylvania, an uh, industrial town in the Northeast. And, and, and we were quite diverse back in those days by those standards. And it, it sort of fosters a, a feeling that there is strength in diversity. And certainly if we're going to deal with climate change, we have to learn how to uh, extend that kind of uh, cooperation at, yeah. at, the, at the regional and, and even the global level eventually. And it's hard with, with states' rights uh, still being so central rather than human rights. We do have to go into sports. I've got a quick question. When you saw, and you've mentioned it a few times, Kamala Harris, uh, the vice president-elect in white, and when you saw her speak, did you get a little tear in your eye? Of course. I mean, how can you otherwise? (laughs) (laughs) You wiped it away. Our guest today, Dr. John Stremlau, professor, honorary professor of international relations at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. It's 9.36 and you are with a guest presenter slot. And we've had an SMS from someone saying that there's an aggressive vilification of Trump by SAFM. And I would say that in my personal capacity, there is a vilification of Trump. As a woman, I feel that he vilified me and every other woman on this globe. And so for me, this was not the man that I could support. So in my case, that would be just a simple enough reason, apart from many other reasons, as to why I would do that. Prof Stremler is our guest. Prof, uh, we do get people saying, nope, you have a position against Trump. Well, that's clear. But give us your reasons why. Well, um, Michelle, this is a tricky question because academics are supposed to be objective. No, they're supposed to be analytic, and they're not supposed to leave their morals uh, by the side. And I just think we have to be explicit about that. I've looked into the uh, Donald Trump administration very closely and carefully, and I've looked into the Barack Obama administration before that, and, and, and to go back my first presidential debate was Nixon-Kennedy uh, in 1960. This has been a long-standing interest of mine, and I make choices. And I, as a voter, I also have to make choices, and I think listeners deserve to know where uh, a prof is coming from. Uh, that, that, that's why I recommended the books that I recommended mm. that we're going to talk about in a minute. So let's talk about those books. And just to note also that never forget that whilst this is SAFM, News and Information, this is, of course, the Saturday and Sunday show, which is not a hard news show in any kind of way. Your first book, Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History. And, of course, you've spoken about the Paris Accord. You've spoken about climate change. It appears to be an issue for you. Well, it, it's an issue for everyone, and I thought that maybe by going back, this book was written in, in 19, uh, 2014, and uh, Elizabeth Colbert is a science writer for the New Yorker magazine, and she's very, very uh, careful about what she researches, but also she's very uh, eloquent in her writing and very precise and also compelling about 
the existential threat that climate change poses for us. Mm. And, and too often we get lost in the details of one policy or another. And I just thought that uh, uh, your listeners might uh, enjoy, uh, if they haven't read, to go back and see the, the, the sort of fundamental uh, trends over the last several million years that have brought us to this point of acceleration, which has occurred really since the end of World War II. There's, of course, been a concern that with COVID-19 and the pandemic over the last year, that climate change has been put on the back burner, which, of course, is critically not the case that should be happening, because in many cases, the reasons for COVID-19 are linked to issues of climate change and how we engage with uh, with our environment. You're certainly right, Michelle. And if you look at uh, Biden's uh, uh, platform and his program planning for the administration, uh, Build Back Better, in fact, weaves together climate change and the economic recovery. He says there's no reason why good jobs can't be found by um, promoting uh, renewable energy and, and employing those and putting the federal government money behind it. If you've got uh, the oil industry and other old uh, lobbyists working to resist that, then you have a problem. But even the oil companies are beginning to come around and see the wisdom of this. It's just precious late moment for, for trying to reverse the trend. And that's what was so destructive about uh, Trump's summarily walking out of the Paris peace, uh, Paris uh, climate uh, change accord, for heaven's yeah. sakes, and the Green Climate Fund that so benefits uh, Africa, where down here we're warming at twice the global rate. Jeez, ain't that the truth. So your second book that you've brought onto the table, which I thought was interesting because you have mentioned not just the Constitution of America, but also the the Constitution of South Africa and the differences that uh, you've noted. Tell us about that. Well, the South African Constitution is a human rights constitution. Uh, and 38 years ago, this coming week, I heard Oliver Tambo in New York uh, give a speech that I thought was going to be about foreign policy, and instead he stood up and he read very slowly the Declaration of Independence and said, how can you people reconcile these values with your support for the apartheid regime, which I thought was a, a stunning um, a reminder, and it, and it reinforced my interest in, in that uh, struggle. And he, of course, delivered on the Constitution here, but it's a very different Constitution than the United States Constitution. The Our Declaration book is written by Danielle Allen, who's a political philosopher at Harvard, a descendant of slaves herself, and she wants to draw attention to the actual text where she feels that what we and what Americans generally ignore is that the Declaration was about equality, not just about liberty, not just about freedom, but about yeah. equality. And and of course it is because all people are created equal is in the preamble, and that was of course at the heart of the South African uh, Constitution that Albie Sachs so eloquently writes about. And Albie recently said that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was um, uh, was asked by the Egyptians what Constitution, uh, what lessons from the U.S. Constitution they could draw. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is a great admirer of the South African Constitution, said, don't look to the American Constitution, look to the South African Constitution. And, and we, we, what we're seeing now is the Chapter 9 institutions provide a much greater independence for the judiciary than is the case in the United States. But also, um, it, it, uh, it, it makes sure that the elections are run more organized way and a more uh, uh, freer, freer of political influence than the U.S. elections, which are based on states' rights. 
You know, the United States Constitution is a bargain between states, just like a regional economic community in Africa. Uh, they yeah. wanted to protect their, their independence, and so smaller states are overwe- overweighted in the U.S. Constitution, and human rights and democratic rights suffer. That's how you get a populist vote that is uh, larger than the Electoral College vote, and someone like Trump gets elected even though he lost the popular vote by $3 million. That's undemocratic. So I'm going to have to move on because uh, you may not realize this, but time speeds up very fast in this hour for sure. You've chosen two wonderful guests, and I'm delighted that you've chosen both of them because I really like both of them as well. Millard Arnold, he's a human rights attorney. He is uh, a senior consultant for law firm Bowman Gilfillan. And what's also so special about him is he's also a photographer and an artist. And we have him on the line right now. Millard, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Great to hear your voice and uh, be on your on your show. <laughs> well, you'll have to thank Prof Stremlau for that. <laughs> Prof, what's, what's the relationship between you two, apart from the fact that you were both uh, raised in the home state of Connecticut. Well, but, but Millard was born in Georgia, so Georgia on his mind, too. Uh, but uh, we, we knew each other uh, in, in, in New York when we were, were much, much, much younger. And um, I, I had to put in a shout-out for his wonderful wife, Shirley Lou Arnold, who was my consultant when I first got involved with South Africa. And, and she was working at the Catholic Bishop's Secretariat with Mangalusa Mkachwe, Reverend Mkachwe. And that really gave me insights into this country. And Millard has, of course, himself worked on the Steve Biko Foundation and wrote, written a book about Steve Biko and has been involved with South Africa um, for as long as I've known him. And uh, I, I, I think that's very much to his credit. Millard, how did you feel last night when you heard the news? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, you don't sometimes, you're not sometimes aware that you're carrying a great weight on your shoulders until it's lifted. And to have Donald Trump off the shoulders of America, I, I, I just felt overjoyed. Um, and pleased as well, because I've had the, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet Joe Biden, and I know what kind of a warm human being he is. And there could not be a greater contrast between uh, both Trump and Biden as uh, as there is. I mean, he, Biden is a wonderful man. And uh, so how did I feel overjoyed? And I heard uh, John mentioned repeatedly Kamala Harris, and that was also a great pleasure of mine because although John and I share Connecticut as uh, a point of reference, Kamala Harris and I share Howard University. We both went to the same university, so I'm very, very pleased to see someone from the Mecca is uh, uh, is uh, the vice president of the United States. Millard, how do you see, as someone who has worked in uh, an ambassadorial uh, rank, but also you, you really have been in America and in South Africa for many years, both ways, how do you see this relationship developing between uh, the Biden-Harris, uh, Biden-Harris partnership and South Africa? Well, I think it's going to be a very fruitful one. Um, one of the things that I think many people don't recognize is that not only has Biden traveled to South Africa on numerous occasions, 
but his daughter-in-law is South African. Um, so he's going to have a vested interest in this country, if for no other reason than just to keep peace at home. So <laughs> I, I, I have every reason to believe that this is going to be a great relationship. Um, one of the things we often said when I was in government is that leadership matters. And it will matter here. Um, and I, I just think that when you look at the way in which Biden has approached both uh, his vice presidential choice, the way he has worked um, uh, with uh, Barack Obama, and the, the important role that he has, he has um, I, I think, facilitated among the Democratic Party about inclusivity, uh, all bodes well for the relationship he'll have here with South Africa. You know, this is a question I'd like to ask both of you and totally separate to um, the literal politics of it. But what you've mentioned now, Milad, is this idea of leadership and the, 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 the move towards what has been described, I suppose, as transformational, uh, empathetic leadership. How critical that is in the world right now, given what we are seeing with issues of climate change, um, migrancy, uh, the, the high levels of, of violence that we are seeing around the world. Milad, how would you engage with that? Well, I think one of the great strengths that Joe Biden has is he's a, he's a conciliator, a conciliating person. He will reach out and conciliate. And that's what we really desperately need. You've seen him do that uh, in his remarks yes, last night. And I think that's going, be, that's going to be the methodology he's going to approach uh, his administration with in terms of his contacts with allies and with um, those that he's uh, in opposition to. And I, I just think that the idea of being able to extend yourself in an empathetic way is so very important at this particular point in time. And I think Biden will do that well. Um, and I don't, you know, you can look at uh, policy, you can talk about policies, you can talk about directions, the things you do, and all of those are important. But more often than not, it's about leadership and the style of leadership that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, and I think that Biden uh, and uh, Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris will provide that kind of leadership, which is so desperately needed. I mean, conciliation is a concept that doesn't just sit and isn't just required in the United States. This is a requirement globally as well. I mean, even I look at some of our listeners and the kind of anger that our listeners often express or the sadness that they express or the joy or whatever. And this idea of conciliation is a difficult one, and yet people don't seem to be able to easily engage in it. Prof. Stremler? Well, you're absolutely right, and Millard answered it very, very well. i just add quickly two things that, that, that talk to this reconciliation. One is the social trust in the United States is really shattered right now, and that's going to be hard to rebuild. And secondly, there's the state, ca- state capacity. Uh, uh, Donald Trump has stripped so many of the agencies, including the State Department, of really good people, dedicated public servants, and who I've worked with over the years, as Millard has, and getting that, those institutions back so that, that the South African Durko can, can interact effectively with the State Department is going to be a practical challenge, and he's going to have a, his hands full on doing those two things. Well, we look forward to that working its way. It's 10 to 9, and when we come back, we'll be chatting to Prof. Stremlau's second guest. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, Destination Unknown. 
Our guest is Professor John Stremlau. I have to say, Prof, you elicit um, lots of uh, responses from our listeners. Lots of people saying, totally agreeing with you. Lots of people saying that you are wrong, that, um, <laughs> as always, so that it's not true that the Trump administration did nothing to stop illicit financial outflows from South Africa. Um, someone else saying that uh, I'm editing your, my, your, the comments, which is not actually true. I am actually suggesting and saying that uh, there, there are dif- different responses. How do you respond to that? Well, I, I respond because I, I, I remember it, when, when terrorism was a concern, uh, South Africans said they talked the guys to death uh, rather than engage in, in terrorism. And I, I, I think there's a need to have this kind of discourse. Yeah. And that's what's broken down in America is there's not been the kind of serious discourse. It's all on social media. And, uh, and, and I think Biden's emphasis on trusting science and supporting um, uh, clear uh, search for truth by responsible journalists is something that has to be mm. pressure, uh, prized and, and promoted. I must say, I did appreciate his comment last night where he said, we will trust science. And given where we're at with COVID-19, that's absolutely critical. I mentioned that your first guest was Millard, is a fabulous photographer and also an artist, which takes us to the surprise choice of guest, someone who I am very fond of, Sam Nklingetwa, artist um, who is artist extraordinaire, I suppose one could call you Sam, who is just, yeah. I just want to say, great artist. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, Prof, why Sam as your second guest? Uh, it, it's obvious. I mean, he, he gives me insight into uh, South Africa, gives us all insights yeah. into South Africa and the inherent dignity of every Brilliant. human being, no matter yeah. what their, their, their task is in life, whether they're the lowest rung of the economic ladder or they're uh, successful. He has portrayed the diversity of this country as compellingly as anyone I know, and I think it, it, it reflects uh, the same kind of interest that he has in the United States, uh, which is why I thought he'd be a good guest to have, because he knows both societies quite well. Sam, it's great to have you on the line. Thanks, Michelle, and thanks to Prof about your kind words, and good morning to your listeners. Good morning to you too. Sam, let's go to this idea of the artist who has to portray something. You have to portray something about being South African in many cases, but uh, also, as the prof says, to portray it with an empathetic engagement. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think uh, the way one expresses himself through the canvas it's the environment that one is always in. And I can also talk about even the past, you know, um, uh, paintings that are produced. They were propelled by our conditions under apartheid. And uh, it's something that one couldn't uh, ignore. It was the situation. I mean, like, for example, the, the Shabville shooting. And uh, the Steve Biko, Steve Biko's death. So those were they just happened to be there in front of you because you are also a victim of that under apartheid. You know, one of your great selection of works is 
where you look at space, you look at space and engagement. And I wonder if you could briefly tell our listeners about that, the room, and then, but, and you align it with other works as well. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm not getting the words out right, but you know what I... Well, 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 well uh, those those are interiors and um, yeah. a, a vacated space. I think it it was like a follow up because like I worked for about thirteen years as a set designer for SABC. So we used to deal with empty spaces when we were designing sets, and this fascinated me because like now I was not doing something that the producer wanted. I created my own space playing with furniture, playing with color, playing with depth. And it's, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. Even like recently, I, I, had a, I was in a group show supporting David Goldblatt. Yes, yeah. And I did, I did a series of about seven of those interior paintings. And um, I think they appeal to, to, to anyone around the world. It's not something that is subjected to South Africa only, but it's more like a universal kind of subject. I think also what they do is they provide a moment of solace and a moment of silence. And I think particularly in a, in a, in a time like this, we need that a lot. Prof Stremlau, I'm not sure if you would agree with that, but the idea that there needs to be a space to just breathe in and breathe out with all the noise that is going on around us. Well, I, I think Sam's greatest works are the last series that he's done on interiors. Yeah. And I can only quote, uh, Nadine Gornimer, the late uh, Nobel laureate, who testified that her sense of who we are as people was advanced greatly by Sam's interior series. So uh, we are in good company, Michelle. We certainly are. Unfortunately, we're coming to a close. So I want to put a question to both of you. Who are we as South Africans, but who are we as uh, citizens of the world? Sam, I'll ask you that first. Well, uh, the COVID has taught us that we are one. We are human beings around the world. Yeah. What does that mean? It means that we need to sort of like uh, forget about race, gender, ego. We are human beings. That's how I can just put it. Prof Stremlow? I, I agree completely with Sam, and what this mask thing is that, that was so politicized in the U.S. is that we take care of our neighbors. Uh, we treat each other as we want to be treated ourselves. And I, I just find that um, the, the, uh, the, the way in which COVID makes citizen responsibility important, but also social cohesion important. Hmm. And somehow we have to marry that the two in a way that allows us to move forward collectively together. And it's very, very difficult. But COVID has at least had that silver lining to remind us that we have the individual responsibilities, but also social responsibilities. Very briefly, Prof, because we're closing off, the Ndlulamiti scenarios speak directly to the concept of social cohesion, particularly in South Africa, a series of scenarios. Do you think that we are moving closer towards that? Or as someone who has lived now many a year in this country, where do you feel we are positioned? Well, I, I, I'm not optimistic, but I certainly have hope. I've learned hope uh, by the miraculous uh, transformation that occurred here. Um, and as uh, Barack Obama said at the Mandela Centennial, he did 
Mandela did speak for all humanity, and I think that's something that we should never lose sight of. I think that's a good way to end it. Professor John Stremlau, thank you so much for joining us. Sam Nklingetwa, thank you. Millard Arnold, thank you. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news, so good morning.